Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This is Part 3 of The Long Road to Reform. In our last episode, we looked at the conciliar movement that formed to end the Great Papal Schism, and that so many had looked to, to be a permanent fixture for reform in the Church. As well-intentioned as the movement was, it ended up resurrecting the schism instead of solving it. In its long battle with the papacy, conciliarism eventually lost. But we turn now to look at a reformer from Bohemia named John Hus, or more properly, Jan Hus, one of my personal all-time favorites from church history. Bohemia was an important part of the Holy Roman Empire, a sovereign state with its capital at Prague. Today, it roughly corresponds with the Czech Republic. It had a long history as a place of vibrant Christianity, especially in the area of monasticism. In 1383, Bohemia and England were linked by the marriage of Anne of Bohemia and the English King Richard II. With this union, students from both countries went back and forth between the colleges of Prague and Oxford, where the pre-reformer John Wycliffe was working. The revolt that Wycliffe started at Oxford expanded when he was booted and met with greater success in Bohemia than England because, unlike England, it was joined to a strong national party led by a man named Jan Hus. Hus came from peasant parents in the southern Bohemian town of Husenitz. He studied theology at the University of Prague, earning a Master of Arts before teaching there and diving into the cause of religious reform. While a student, Hus was introduced to the early philosophy of Wycliffe, but it was only after his appointment as the pastor of Bethlehem Chapel that he was exposed to Wycliffe's more radical views on religious reform. He immediately adopted Wycliffe's views that the church was the invisible company of the elect, with Jesus as its head rather than the Pope. Bethlehem Chapel was located near the University of Prague, giving Hus an open door to circulate Wycliffe's writings. As his ideas took hold, paintings began to appear on the walls of the church contrasting the behavior of the popes and Christ. In one, the Pope rode a horse while Jesus walked barefoot. Another showed Jesus washing the disciples' feet while the popes were being kissed. Bethlehem Chapel had been founded in 1391 to encourage the national faith of Bohemia. So Hus's strong sermons in Bohemian rather than Latin stirred up popular support for reform. And wouldn't you know it, where do you think the first protests came from? That's right, it was students who rioted both for and against the ideas of Wycliffe that were being promoted by Hus and his supporters. The Archbishop of Prague realized the threat that Hus's activities had for the upper echelons of church hierarchy and complained to the Pope. The Pope responded saying, quote, root out the heresy. And so the Archbishop excommunicated Hus. Bad move, for right away the Archbishop realized how little local support he had. When Hus realized that he had the backing of the people, he ramped up his criticisms and attacked the Pope's sale of indulgences to support his war against Naples. That was too much for the Bohemian King Wenceslas. Hus might have the support of the common people, but his condemnation of the sale of indulgences impacted a political issue that the king didn't want messed with. Negotiations between Pope and King saw Prague placed under a papal interdict a political and religious slap on the wrist that had an immediate impact on the people across the board. When under an interdict, people remained members of the church, but the sacraments were suspended. All of this happened because of Hus, and so he left Prague to live in exile in southern Bohemia. 
It was during this time that he wrote his most notable work, titled On the Church. The Council of Constance that we looked at in our last episode was fast approaching. This was the council that was set to solve the problem of the Great Papal Schism, at the urging of the Emperor Sigismund, Hus agreed to appear. He hoped to present his views on the nature of the church to the members of the council. He ended up instead a victim of the Inquisition. The rule of the Inquisition was simple. If enough witnesses testified to the guilt of the accused, he had to confess and renounce his heir, or he'd be executed by being burned because, well, being good churchmen, they couldn't shed blood. If the accused confessed, the sentence was life in prison, which in most cases was hardly better than being burnt at the stake. Hus's case was handled in a manner that was typical for the Inquisition of that time. Greedy inquisitors often went after someone simply because they lusted for their property. So, people were accused of some grievous crime, and there were usually enough witnesses for hire around who'd say whatever the inquisitors paid them to. In Hus's case, the inquisitors weren't after his wealth. The church simply wanted him gone. And so he was accused and found guilty of heresies he'd never taught. Now, Hus said that he would alter his views if they could be shown to be contrary to Scripture. But he refused to recant the heresies he'd been falsely accused of. It was a matter of principle. To recant them, he'd have to admit that he had taught them. But he hadn't. So how could he recant something he had never taught? But the inquisitors were adamant. Hus must recant. In words similar to what Martin Luther would say sometime later while on trial at Worms, Hus said, quote, I have said that I would not, for a chapel full of gold, recede from the truth. I know that the truth stands and is mighty forever and abides eternally with whom there is no respect of persons, unquote. It's clear in the letters that Hus wrote at this time from prison that his main anxiety was that, quote, liars would say I've slipped back from the truth that I preached, unquote. This trial of Hus is one of those special standout moments in church history. His fidelity and refusal to swerve from truth, even to save his life, were duplicated many times by thousands of the unnamed. But it was Hus who forged the template. For eight months, he lay in prison in Constance. His letters during this time rank among the greatest in Christian literature. Quote, O most holy Christ, draw me, weak as I am, after yourself, for if you do not draw us, we cannot follow you. Strengthen my spirit, for it may be willing. If the flesh be weak, let your grace precede us, come between and follow, for without you we cannot go for your sake to cruel death. Give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love, that for your sake I may lay down my life with patience and joy. Amen. Unquote. On July 6th of 1415, Jan Hus was led out of his cell and began the walk to the place where he was to be burned. On the way, he passed through a churchyard and saw a bonfire of his books. He laughed and told those looking on not to believe the lies being passed around about him. On arriving at the stake in a spot called the Devil's Place, Hus knelt and prayed. Following protocol, the official in charge of the execution asked him for the final time if he'd recant and save his life. Hus replied, quote, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never taught nor preached except with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. In the truth of the gospel I have written, taught, and preached, today I will gladly die." Unquote. The inquisitors thought that Hus's condemnation and execution would put the kibosh on the calls for reform. 
They thought that burning hoose was a kind of backfire that would put out the forest fire lit by Wycliffe's criticisms. It couldn't have been more wrong. The Bohemian Rebellion grew and developed into both moderate and militant wings. The moderates were called ultraquists, a Latin term for both, since their protest called for freedom to receive both the bread and the cup in communion. The militants were called Taborites after the city in Bohemia that served as their headquarters. This was an apocalyptic group that called for radical reforms. Facing armed resistance from the Bohemian king at the urging of the Pope, the various groups of Huss's followers, loosely called Hussites, agreed to what's called the Four Articles. Under the Articles, while the various groups might differ on this or that, they were far more united with each other in facing the king. The Four Articles were, number one, the Word of God was regarded as the chief authority and was to be taught freely throughout the kingdom. Number two, per the altarquists, communion would be given by both bread and cup. Three, all agreed that the clergy should give up their wealth and live in apostolic poverty. And fourth, simony and any other public sin was to be punished. When King Wenceslaus died in 1419, his successor was Sigismund, the guy who had failed Hus at Constance. The Hussites demanded that he agree to the Four Articles and grant them freedom of worship. Sigismund refused and petitioned the Pope to proclaim a crusade against them. The Pope agreed, and Sigismund marched on Prague, where he and his army were crushed by the Hussites. Their leader was Jan Ziska, who turned the many peasant carts into a kind of war chariot. In a follow-up battle, a remnant of Sigismund's army was wiped out, and then a year later, an army of 100,000 crusaders fled yet again before Zika's carts. A third crusade, a year after that, in 1422, dissolved before it even met them. Under different leaders, the Bohemians crushed two later crusades that were called against them, one in 1427 and then another in 31. The Council of Basel extended an olive branch to the Hussites, but they, fearing the same treatment that Huss had received at Constance, refused. So yet another crusade was called against them. This was also put down. Good grief, when are these people going to learn? Actually, this defeat convinced the Catholics that negotiation with the Hussites was necessary. As a result of that negotiation, the church in Bohemia rejoined the rest of the Western Christendom, but was allowed to retain ultraquist communion as well as a modified form of the Four Articles. While most of the nobility accepted this arrangement and honored Sigismund as king, many of the commoners left the church and formed the Unitas Fratrum, or the Union of Brethren. Their numbers grew in Bohemia and nearby Moravia. They'll become closely aligned with the Reformation later. What the lives of Wycliffe and Hus make clear is that if the Church of Rome was going to be reformed from within, it had ample opportunity in the 14th and early 15th centuries. By the end of the 15th, those who hoped to bring reform by councils were themselves frustrated and by their opponents repudiated. The treatment of Wycliffe and Hus by church authorities made clear to all reform-minded how they were going to be dealt with. It was now clear, reform of the papal church from within was impossible. The time of judgment had come. In our next episode, we'll take a look at an Italian reformer from a bit later in the 15th century, Savonarola. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for 
History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.